The text this morning is from Colossians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. These are the words of God. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Our Father and gracious God, we are very grateful for the privilege of gathering today around your word. I thank you for your spirit who did the gathering. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts, soften our hearts, teach us what you would have us to do with this text as we leave this place. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. So we are continuing, uh, finishing up our series, uh, actually, on... um, various themes suggested by the definition of Chalcedon. And, as this is the last and final message, when it's completed, you will understand everything. And if you do, you've probably veered into heresy. If you, if you, if you understand everything, you've, or labored to understand everything, you've sort of missed the point. In the 4th century, the Council of Nicaea settled the question of the Lord's deity, The question arose, obviously, when Jesus commanded the wind and the waves. The disciples said, who who is this? Who who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? So the Council of Nicaea settled that question. Uh, Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. And consequently, the Council of Nicaea became the touchstone that enables us to address various Trinitarian heresies. A Trinitarian heresy has to do with the unity of the Godhead and the tripersonal nature of God's existence and all without reference to the creation. In other words, God did not create the world because he was lonely, uh, contrary to many folk tales. Right? He didn't create the world because he was lonesome. He didn't create the world to fill up any deficiency in him. There was no deficiency in him. He was complete. He was overflowing. He had no lack. So when God created the world, it was not a selfish act. It was not directed toward himself. He created, and it was an overflow. Now, what we're talking about in uh, when we're talking about the Trinity is what was God like before the created order? What was God like before he said, let there be light? God was complete in himself. He was the inexhaustible I am. So consequently, a Trinitarian heresy is a heresy that messes around with that, that talks about how, how God is not really triune or God is uh, a Unitarian God or God is, or, you know, it's some, something wrong with that. What is God like in himself? And people who get that wrong are heretics on the Trinity and people who confess the Orthodox faith are, the, are, Trinitarian, are Orthodox in a, trin, in a Trinitarian sense. In the 5th century, the Council of Chalcedon addressed the relationship of the human and divine in Jesus of Nazareth, a question that naturally arose as a result of confessing the Incarnation. So, if we've confessed that the Word is God, and then in John 1.14 it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, how did that work? How did the Word become flesh? And what is the relationship of the Word 
to the human nature of Jesus. And errors on this question are usually called Christological heresies. So we have Trinitarian heresies that have to do with God in himself, independent of creation. And we have Christological heresies that get things wrong about how God invaded the created order in the incarnation. Now, as we look at this issue in the light of the text that I read already, we've seen that the apostles held two very distinct conceptions of the Lord Jesus. They had two very distinct conceptions of him. On the one hand, they recognized his full humanity. They recognized his full humanity. We saw him, John says, and we touched him, 1 John 1.1. We shared meals with him. We walked along the road with him. We walked ahead of him. We walked behind him. We saw him from every direction. And we saw him at the last nailed to a cross of wood. We saw him die. We saw him die. He was a human being. At the same time, the apostles speak easily and readily of Christ as a cosmic Lord. As a cosmic Lord. As in our text this morning. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the um, one in whom all the fullness of everything dwells in him. And he reconciles everything that's fragmented. He, He reconciles them and brings them to a condition of peace in his own person. And then the disciples speak of this cosmic Lord and this human being as one integrated personality. So that's what we see in Scripture. They confess his full humanity. They talk about him as though he's as human as you or I are because he was and is fully human. And they speak of him as a cosmic Lord. They speak of him as Yahweh, as Jehovah. And they speak of him as one divine person. So let's consider this text here. Our Lord Jesus is the head of the whole body, the church, That's in verse 18. And he is the arche of all creation. The arche of all creation. He's the integration point of all things, which is the word, arche, beneath uh, beginning. So in John 1.1, when it says, in the the beginning was the word, the word for for beginning there is arche, in arche and halagos. In the beginning was the word. And it's not just saying at the starting point as though we're measuring this with a stopwatch. It's not saying, okay, Somebody hit, hit go and the, the, the hand started moving around the stopwatch. He's not just the beginning in that sense. The word arche encompasses rule, authority, integration. He is the integration point of all things, which is what is being claimed uh, here in Colossians 1. He is the firstborn from among the dead. And this privileged position makes it plain that he must have the preeminence. Verse 18. Other Individuals were resuscitated. Even in the Old Testament, there were people who were brought back from the dead. Um, But Lazarus was brought back from the dead and then had to die again. The the son of the widow at Nain was resuscitated, but then had to die again. Uh, uh, Dorcas, in the book of Acts, was brought back from the dead, but had to die again. When Jesus came back from the dead, it was different than a resuscitation. He was resurrected, and we're told in Hebrews that death has no more authority over him. Death cannot touch him. He entered into a completely different 
state of being. Death has no authority at all. And so consequently, because he was raised from the dead and was the firstborn from the dead, he has the preeminence. If someone comes back from the dead in this world in that way, then the only conclusion you can draw is that he owns that world. He owns the world. He's the Lord of it because nothing, death cannot touch him. So all the fullness of all things dwells in him. And this was the pleasure of the Father. That's verse 19. If there is anything out there that has fullness in it, then that is part of what fills out Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fullness of that which fills everything, as it says in Ephesians. He's the fullness of that which fills everything, and the fullness of all things dwells in him, inheres in him. Verse 19. Everything in this fragmented creation order that was shattered and broken is restored in him. Christ's mission was to make peace for all of it, reconciling all of it to himself and reconciling all of it in himself. That's verse 20. So Jesus is the fullness of everything. He's the integration point for everything. He is the cosmic Lord, right? He is the cosmic Lord. But then this soaring rhetoric comes down to earth with a crash when we see that it is to be accomplished through the blood of his cross. It's accomplished through the blood of his cross. This was blood that was shed, remember, because of the collapse of Pontius Pilate in the face of an angry mob. In other words, a cowardly politician cratered and Jesus was crucified. Uh, And God sent a dream to Pilate's wife. She warned him, don't have anything to do with this. But Pilate was more afraid of the crowd than he feared God. And he collapsed. Pilate wasn't cruel. Pilate didn't want to... Um, well, he was cruel, but that was <laughs> that's in other situations. He wasn't going for Je- he wasn't gunning for Jesus. He wanted to he wanted to exonerate Jesus. He wanted to let Jesus go, but he collapsed. He he cratered in the face of a mob, and Jesus was nailed to a cross as a consequence. And because of the blood that ran down that cross, the cosmos is put right. That's what we're talking about. This is, the, this is the faith we are confessing. This cosmic Lord shed the blood of a man and died in agony, and therefore everything is put right again. That's the Christian faith. The blood of a man was shed. 2,000 years ago, a religious teacher, a rabbi, ran afoul of the authorities, was railroaded and crucified, and because he died there, everything that's wrong in the cosmos is restored. That's what we confess. And we might say, but what? Why? What sense does that make? Why why do we tell this story? Why do we insist upon telling this story? Well, we don't insist upon telling it. God insisted upon telling it. This is his story, which we repeat. And it's not the sort of thing that we would have cooked up. It's not the sort of thing that we would have come up with ourselves. And all of this, and and the, the really staggering part, is the place where these two realities run into each other. The, the divine nature of the Lord, his, full, his complete God, Godhood, and his complete manhood. They come together in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the heart of what Chalcedon is testifying to. I'm going to quote from two places in Chalcedon that underscore this or that emphasize it. Our Lord Jesus Christ, notice one man, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead 
and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man. Then a little bit later, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord Jesus Christ again, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord Jesus Christ, one Lord. One Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, two natures, fully God and fully man. Now remember that we are simply stating what Scripture requires us to state, and this is not an attempt to do the math. We're not trying to explain to you how you can get your mind around this stupendous miracle and completely comprehend it. If you could get your mind around this miracle and comprehend it, it wouldn't be the miracle that it is. This confession is admittedly miraculous. We are confessing a miracle. And we don't understand how God could do this thing. We don't understand how the infinite God could take on finite human flesh. But that's what we confess. That's what Christmas is celebrating. That's what we're celebrating. The infinite word took on human flesh, finite human flesh. And so this is a miracle. And this means that you won't be able to get your mind around it, but don't, don't let that bother you, even though some of you might be muttering, but it does bother me. Um, but apply this, use equal weights and measures. Everything about our faith is over our heads. Everything. Do you believe that God created the cosmos out of nothing? Do you believe that he said, let there be light, and there was light? There was nothing before, and all of a sudden, Jupiter's there? All of a sudden, the sun is there? All of a sudden, galaxies are there? He just speaks, and there they are? Now, can you, can you do the math with that? No, I can't. we can't do the math with any of this stuff. We can confess what is being stated. We don't use our re, uh, reason. Human reason should be thought of as your eyeball. Right? It's not, it, it receives light. It's not a lamp. Your, your human reason, your eyes are not lamps. They don't shed light. They receive light. So when, when we come to the Word of God, we come to the Word of God, we want to do so as rational creatures with our eyes open. But when we come to the Word of God with our eyes open, the point is to receive light, not to shed light. Your eyes are not lamps. Your eyes are not flashlights. Your eyes don't shed light. You can't generate this kind of wisdom with your reason. But you can understand what God is telling you, and God is telling you that he created the world out of nothing. God is telling you that he visited man. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, is named Emmanuel, God with us. He tells you that, and reason receives that. Okay, he's a finite man. Okay, he's the infinite God. He's one person. Reason receives that, but you're not shedding light. So if you can get your mind around the fact that, uh, you can get your mind around the fact, rather, that we confess two distinct natures, united in one person, and you don't muddle them up. You don't mix them up. Now, what I want to do is, if it, the natural human tendency is to slip off the point, we want it to, we have an itch down inside that wants to make it make sense to us. We want to come up with some sort of brilliant Sunday school illustration that we give to all the third graders. And, and I don't think I've ever heard a Sunday school illustration that wasn't a heresy. Right. Sunday school illustrations are bad news. Uh, the, the Trinity is not like steam and liquid and, and uh, ice. Right. That's modalism. That's a heresy. It's, Sunday school illustrations are bad news. So don't try to get your mind around it in a way that you can explain it to yourself, keep yourself from being awake at two in the morning. 
Heresies often arise as the result of people trying to make all the pieces fit together within the tiny confines of their own minds. Some people have an itch to make it all make sense to them, and the result is tiny and very tinny dogmas. Tiny and tinny. Here here are a few uh, common heresies. And I want you to notice how they slip off the point. They don't hold the two things that the Bible says. They don't hold them in tension where we're supposed to hold them in tension. Ebionism holds that Jesus was the Messiah, but just an ordinary man with Joseph and Mary as his parents. The Ebionites were Jewish Christians in the early years of the church. They confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. He was a rabbi. But he was simply human. So, problem solved, right? You, you, don't, you don't have to figure out how the divine and human relate in this one person if you simply deny the deity, which is what they did. They said he's a great teacher, he's a moral teacher, he's a rabbi, he's the Messiah, um, but he's not God at all. People today who want to say that Jesus was just a great moral teacher represent a modern form of this. A modern form of the Ebionite heresy is to say Jesus was a great teacher. Except that he claimed to be God. Right? And great moral teachers don't do that unless they are God. Right? If, if uh, C.S. Lewis points out in Mere Christianity that a man who says, I am God, and the only way you can get to heaven is by believing in me, is on the same level as someone who comes up to you in the subway and says, I'm a poached egg. Right? Um, and as Christopher Hitchens said, when people talk that way on the subway, do you scoot closer or farther away? <laughs> when, right, this, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And they understood him and picked up stones to stone him. They understood what he was claiming. Before Abraham was, I am. And he uses the name of God. So he's either lying, he's, he's a charlatan and he's lying, which means that he's not a great moral teacher, or he's, a, he's out of his mind, he's a lunatic, which means that he's not a great moral teacher, or he's who he said he was. So, as Lewis points out, he excludes the, the option, the Ebionite heresy is simply excluded given the nature of the Lord's claims. Well, there's another simple way of solving the problem. Deceticism holds that Jesus was completely divine and that his humanity was only an apparition. The word comes from the Greek verb dokane, which means to seem. So uh, doceticism says that Jesus seemed to be human. He seemed to eat. He seemed to sleep. He seemed to walk. But all of that was just uh, an optical illusion. It was just a, a vision of some sort. He didn't really have a human body. And notice how they solved the problem of how do we relate the human and the divine? Well, the Ebionites denied the deity, and the Docetists deny the humanity. A third option is adoptionism. Adoptionism holds that Jesus was fully human and was adopted as the Son of God at some point in time, at some point in his life. Most of them said this happened at his baptism or uh, possibly at his resurrection. So Jesus is simply an ordinary human being, and God, by his Holy Spirit, adopts him and makes him the Son of God at a certain point. That also is a heresy. Another one, next one, is Apollinarianism. 
And you might say, I knew we were going to get into the big words. Um, why, do you, why do you use... The, look, deal with the big words. Uh, you, know, you know other big words. <laughs> Minneapolis is a big word. Uh, delicatessen is a big word. Basketball is a big word. No, enough with your prejudice against big words. Uh, Apollinarianism, named after the man who initially taught it, taught that the word, which was a perfect divine nature, took on a human body in Jesus, replacing his human soul and mind. Thus, Jesus was God on the inside and man on the outside. Right? So like a man might put on a gorilla suit, God put on a man suit. And inside he was divine, and outside he was a man. But of course, he's not really human. And notice if that's the case, he's not, he's just a shell of a human. He's not a human being. He's not like you. He's not like me. He's not fully human. And so Chalcedon rejected that as well. The last one I have here is Nestorianism. Now, uh, Nestorianism is slightly tricky. I'll explain that in a minute. This is the view that denies the unity of the person of Christ, suggesting that there were two natures, two persons going on, loosely joined. In other words, I've been insisting two natures, one person, and the, the person is the point of union. The person is the place where the two natures come together. But Nestorianism taught that there were two natures, two persons, loosely joined in this one individual, uh, with emphasis on the loosely. Now, in the interest of fairness, it should be mentioned that there are good arguments for suggesting that Nestorius himself was not a Nestorian. Right? Um, I'm not used to quoting John Dewey favorably, but John Dewey once said, Lord, deliver me from my disciples. Um, th there are people going around teaching in my... Uh, that's not what I would have... Uh, I wouldn't have put it that way. I wouldn't have put it that way. Nestorius himself, when the, when the definition of Chalcedon was issued, Nestorius himself pointed at the, at the creed and said that he was vindicated. He said, that, that's, my, that's what I've been trying to tell you. But Nestorianism, later on, did, hold, did adopt the uh, heretical form of this, which, which denied that the person was the point of union. So you've got two persons and two natures. That's Nestorianism. Now, notice how all of these are sort of common sense solutions. Well, how do we reconcile the divine and human? Well, X this one out, or X the other one out, or put one inside and one outside. We're, we're, what we're doing is shifting off the point. The point is that Jesus is God, and Jesus is one of us. He is the apostle of God. He represents God to us. He is our high priest. He represents, as a true human being, he represents us to God. And so here's our confession. Here is our faith. We are Christians, which means that our lives center on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two elements to the gospel here. One is the person of Christ and the other is the work of Christ. If we get Chalcedon wrong, we are corrupting the doctrine of his person. And then if we do that, we empty the cross of its dynamic power because the cross has the power it does because of who died there. There have been many people who were crucified before Jesus and there were many who were crucified after Jesus. The simple fact of a human being being crucified does not deal with our sin. Right? Because every person who was crucified before Christ and everyone who's crucified afterwards, when, when the Romans destroyed 
Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was a forest of crosses. They crucified so many people, it was like you were in the woods. And every tree had a body hanging on it. There were, but everyone there was a sinner. Everyone there died, just like all of us are going to die. All of us are going to die because we are sinners. We're members of a fallen race. And because of that, when we die, no injustice is happening to us. Nothing. We're just dying because of our own fallenness, our own uh, fallen condition. Jesus was the only one who ever died who was sinless that way. He, and he died as a perfect sacrifice. And God arranged it so that he himself, God himself, took the penalty that we incurred for rebelling against him and against his word. So the cross has the dynamic power that it does because of who died there. Because of who died. He was a spotless lamb who died on the cross. Now, one of the consequences, there are many, I think, but one of the consequences of losing a good understanding of Chalcedon is that our political and cultural elites... At that point, when we deny, when we slip off the point, what they see is a job opening. Well, what do I mean by that? If there is no ultimate union between heaven and earth in Christ, then they want to supply that ultimate meaning themselves. When they, so Christians might say, oh, that's a mistake. You're, that's a Christological mistake, as though that's the only thing that's going on. No. In the ancient world, whether we're talking about Pharaoh or Caesar or any other ancient ruler, when, we are, when you're dealing with a secular state, when you're dealing with a humanistic state, the leader of the, the person at the apex of that state invariably wants to become God, invariably wants to become God in the minds of the, the highest authority, in the minds of his people. Caesar Augustus was the, the cult of emperor worship, Began, Jesus was born in the reign of Caesar Augustus, and emperor worship began during the reign of Caesar Augustus. They began worshiping him, particularly in modern Turkey, in uh, what they called Asia Minor. They were devoted to the worship of Caesar. That sort of worship doesn't arise in a vacuum. Pharaoh was the point of integration between heaven and earth. The, the, Caesar was the point of integration between heaven and earth. And if you don't confess Christ as the integration point between heaven and earth, there will be a rival. There will be someone else that volunteers to take that place. And after uh, about 10 minutes, it's not voluntary anymore. It's mandatory. You, know, you will recognize that they are the integration point, and you will bow down. And if you don't bow down, you're in trouble. And this, is, this is why Christians were thrown to the lions. It's, Christians were not thrown to the lions because they worshipped Jesus. The Romans could care less who you worshipped. They had, they didn't give a rip. You can worship any. You can worship them all. You can worship everybody. As far as the, the Romans were broad-minded, except for one point. The Romans persecuted the Christians not because of who they worshipped, but because of who they wouldn't. They wouldn't worship Caesar. They wouldn't worship Caesar, and so consequently, that's why they went to the lions. And all you had to do is take a little pinch of incense, and a little tiny pinch of incense, and dedicate it to the emperor, the spirit of Rome. All, that's all you had to do. It, was, it, it didn't mean anything. Just, just go ahead and do it. Don't, be, don't get your back up about these things. And the early Christians flat refused to do it. Jesus is aiming, aiming at this, uh, this folly, dead center, when the Herodians and the Pharisees came to trap him. 
The Herodians were the collaborators with Rome. The Pharisees were the arch-conservatives of that day. So there's a dog and cat coalition coming together. The Herodians and the Pharisees were not natural pals, right? But the Herodians and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, is it lawful to pay a tax? And Jesus saw what they were up to. (laughs) Pharisees, Herodians standing together. Why is that? Because if Jesus said, no, you don't have to pay the tax, then the Herodians run off and say, look at this tax rebel. So the Herodians got, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, the Herodians say, gotcha. And if Jesus says, no, go ahead and do whatever Rome says, then the Pharisees, the Pharisees say, gotcha. And the Pharisees say, see, you're, you're putting man before God. So they set the trap and Jesus, what does he do? He throws them all completely. He asks for a coin and they bring a coin and he says, whose pictures on this? Whose images on that? And they said, George Washington. It was a quarter. It was a quarter. And Jesus said, okay, if Washington manages to get his picture on it, you can send it to Washington. Right. Now, what, but he, that's not all he says. He says, if Washington gets his image on it, then go ahead. It's, it's lawful to give to Washington. But render to God the things that are God's. Well, how do I tell what those are? Well, what has God's image on it? You do. Your children do. Everyone that you know has God's image, and therefore everyone you know must not be rendered to Caesar. You can, you can send a piece of money to Caesar, but you may not render yourself. You may not bow down. You may not worship Caesar as though he is the, the, the union between heaven and earth. And so Jesus shows us the lawfulness of paying taxes, but he shows us the unlawfulness of paying taxes as an extortion racket. In other words, when, when Caesar says... I'm going to demand that money from you, and I'm going to demand that money from you as a token of the reality that all the rest of you belongs to me as well. Jesus says no to that. And so what we're, what we're seeing here is that there is, uh, this is another inescapable concept. When, when men deny Christ as the integration point between heaven and earth, you can depend upon it, they're going to suggest another one. And the one that they suggest is going to be an idolatrous one. When people, here's another illustration of the same thing. When people deny God's sovereignty over all things, God's predestination of all things, God's foreordination of all things, they don't deny it because they don't like it. They love predestination. When people deny predestination, they, they don't, it's not because they dislike predestination. It's because they dislike God doing it. They want to do it. In other words, do, do, does Google have a problem with predestination? No. They want to control everything, right? Do, does rebellion, rebellious, impudent man have a problem with predestination? No. Do they have a problem? No, they want the state to govern everything. They want, the, they want to anticipate every eventuality. So when you deny the prerogatives of God, when you deny who Christ is, when you die, deny those things, we need to understand that Chalcedon and the early creeds, Nicaea and Chalcedon, are bulwarks against statist humanist tyranny. They're bulwarks, they're, they're firewalls. To drift away from Chalcedon is to invite our political and cultural leaders into a grotesque form of idolatry. So everyone who wants to resist earthbound tyranny has to be staunch on Chalcedon. You can't, you can't just have traditional values and something that somebody told you 25 years ago that your grandpa said, that's not going to resist tyrants. You have, to, you have to have it in your bones that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. 
He's the one who rose from the dead. He's the one who owns all the nations of men. Why? Because he bought them with his blood. The cross has the ability to fascinate all men. And the cross has the power to draw all men to God. Precisely because of the identity of the one who died there. Unless Jesus was a man, he could not die. Unless Jesus was a man, he could not die. So he was born to die. He could not shed his blood for us unless he had blood. He needed to have blood in order to shed it for us. Unless Jesus were God, and then flip it around, unless Jesus were God, his death would not have the ultimate salvific meaning that it does. God himself, the one who assigned the penalty for sin and rebellion, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, you shall surely die. The God who spoke the words that assigned that penalty is the God who took that penalty on himself. So Adam disobeyed at a tree, and Adam obeyed on a tree. The first Adam disobeyed at a tree, the second Adam obeyed on a tree. And thus it is that we are saved. So unless Jesus were God, his death would not have the ultimate salvific meaning that it does. And so it is that we must acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth, fully God and fully man, died on the cross for the sins of the world. And this is why Paul can say in Romans 1, 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So why is Paul not ashamed of this gospel? Because it is the power of God. And you might say, you might be saying, yeah, but it sounds like a head trip. You know, fully God, fully man, one person, Chalcedon, centuries ago, early church fathers scrapping it out, you know, all of these. And then, and then they, maybe they even had some politics going and they did wrong by Nestorius. And there, maybe there was some cloak and dagger stuff and all this stuff. Why are you not embarrassed by all, it, all of this? Because when I preach it, lives are changed. When I preach it, people are put back together. When you preach it, Anything that's busted in heaven and earth comes together. When you declare who Jesus is and you declare that he died on the cross and his burial and his resurrection, marriages are saved. Kids are saved. Lives are put back together. Selfishness is crucified. Lust is crucified. Envy is crucified. Why? It's the power of God unto salvation. Why, Why are you not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul? Because I turned the Roman Empire upside down by talking about it. That's why I'm not... I've traveled around the Mediterranean telling people these things, and everybody gets into an uproar everywhere I go. Why? Because it is the power of God. And it's the power of God in the transformation of lives. It's the power of God. It's the power of God. Our Father in God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the gospel that you've given to us. We thank you for your son who was born in our midst to be Emmanuel for us, God with us. Father, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for the cross that he died on, the grave that he was in. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for his ascension. We thank you for all of it. And Father, as we thank you, we would repeat back to you and present back to you the words that he taught us to pray, saying, The balance that we maintain in performing and partaking in communion weekly is to risk the meal losing its significance either to tradition 
or familiarity. Pastors, or pastors in training, stand here every week and give an exhortation about why we take communion. We explain it in the body. We explain it in the covenant. We explain the leavening. We explain the scope, the limitations, what it is and what it is not. And all of these explanations are true. The Bible gives us two clear purposes why, are, why we are to participate in communion. And the first is to remember. Remembering is necessary because it is our tendency to forget. Children, when you hear your parents reminding you about your chores or to practice the piano or finish your homework, remembering might not be that much fun. But kids and parents... When was the last time you forgot your birthday or Christmas? When Christ asks us to break bread and remember his body broken for us, this is an infinitely greater gift and one that deserves weekly remembrance in our worship. But taking this meal is not just a weekly internal effort to remember. It actually has an external function. When we gather in from the world, confess our sins corporately, and individually, confess our shared faith, and hear God's word read, and hear it preached, and participate in it in communion, we we proclaim. Proclaiming is the gospel advancing. Proclaiming is like a clear bell ringing, or a bright light in your house, or a city on a hill. These two reasons, to remember and to proclaim, is why we take this meal every time we worship. So come to remember. Come to proclaim. Come and welcome to Jesus. Our God and Father, thank you for this meal. Thank you for what it means. Thank you for what it does in your kingdom. Father, we commit it to you now and ask for your work, the work of your spirit in it. Amen. The charge is this. When Jesus called his disciples, one of the things he would say is, come, follow me. A a Christian is a disciple of Christ. He is a follower of Christ. Christ has summoned you to follow him. But you're not to follow anyone that pretends to be him. You're not to follow an antichrist or a false Christ or a false Jesus. You are to follow follow the, the one and true Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. The voice of the one who summons you to follow him is the God man, the one who died on the cross and rose again for you. Now with believing hearts, receive the benediction of your God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.